I wrote Heroes and Villains with Brian. He said, da 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 I forget the lyrics. It was a great tune. There were so many aspects of the Smile album and the elements and, and all the things that made up the record that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go. Because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. It wasn't fulfilling him, it was painful. So uh, we made Smiley smile instead. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee, and I hope wherever you're listening, you are safe and well. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. As always, we are here to celebrate the music, life, and legacy of the cousins, friends, and brothers that make up America's band, our band, the Beach Boys. Today, we will continue to discover more and more about the Abandoned Smile Sessions. The response to our Surf's Up episode was really great, so thank you guys very much for listening and for your feedback. We just hit 150,000 listeners, so that's really special, really humbling, and I'm very appreciative, especially to those of you who support the show on Patreon. That is what keeps the show running and keeps us advertisement-free. I know times are tough for a lot of people, so I'm extremely appreciative to uh, all our patrons, but especially... Britton Boyd, Byron Wilkes, Lee Podair, James Shelton, Mikey McPherson, Zach Hicks, Beth Hedgeman, Bob Cheely, Stott Howard, and Brent Funderburg for being our biggest contributors. That's patreon.com slash sale on. We love you! All right, let's get into some long overdue emails. This one is from Aaron. Hey guys, I wanted to let you know that you're doing an amazing job on the show. The amount of rarities and studio outtakes that you've managed to share with us is amazing, and your knowledge of the ins and outs of the music is truly impressive. I've been an obsessed Beach Boys fan since the mid-90s. I'm 42 now, so that's well over half my life. As long as I can remember, the Beach Boys are always there in the background. I grew up outside Detroit, on the Canadian side, so we had access to Detroit radio, and there was no shortage of oldies stations playing the Beach Boys. However, the 80s were also a time when the boys were possibly at their most unhip, and to me they seemed like a bunch of cheesy old guys in Hawaiian shirts. I remember hearing Getcha Back on Top 40 Radio, and a few years later Kokomo. Again, to me it was just cheese. I certainly had no knowledge of the genius of Brian Wilson, or all the beautiful music he created. In fact, I remember my 6th grade teacher saying she was going to see the Beach Boys in concert, and I remember asking her why. By the mid-1990s, several years later, I was obsessed with 60s music, particularly British Invasion stuff. The Who were my favorite band, and as a budding drummer, Keith Moon was my idol. In reading about him, I came to learn of his love for surf music, particularly Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys. Also around this time, I watched a documentary about the history of rock, which featured a segment about pet sounds, and it featured a clip of Carl singing God Only Knows. Something in my brain clicked. I couldn't get this song out of my head. It didn't take long for the music of the Beach Boys to take over my life. At first, I gravitated to the Endless Summer album. The earlier upbeat surf and car stuff really appealed to me. This fun, upbeat music was a refreshing contrast from a lot of the heavy rock and metal that I had been listening to at the time. It was feel-good music, and I really needed that. 
It took a little longer for me to absorb pet sounds, but once I did, I realized the brilliance of Brian Wilson. This was beautiful music coming from a very pure, vulnerable place, and I'd never heard anything quite like it. It was sad, happy, beautiful, majestic, and profound all at once. After this, I read, watched, and listened to everything I could find about the Beach Boys, and I drove down a well that I'm still exploring 70 years later. I got the Good Vibrations box set around 95 or so, and it changed my life. I came to love the post-pet sounds period up to about 71, but it was the smile material on that box that blew my mind completely. There was something so fascinating to me about the legendary unfinished masterpiece. It was like musical archaeology, trying to piece it all together and imagine what it would have sounded like and the effect it would have had if it would have been released. The more I read about the Beach Boys, the more I become fascinated with them and all that they've been through. To me, the Smile album was one of the great what-ifs of music history. It was so heartbreaking to me to realize how close Brian had come to realizing all his dreams and ambitions, only to pull his punch at the crucial moment. But more than this, I realized that their story had everything. Theirs was the tale of the last 50 years of American history. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, LSD, marijuana, Manson, surfing, cars, California, booze, brilliance, insanity, abuse, money, Vietnam, peace, love, violence, family squabbles, nostalgia, success, failure, resurgence, triumph. Their story contained it all. Brian Wilson became one of my musical idols, and I've been lucky enough to see him in concert nine times, the most recently about a month ago in Detroit. The first time was the Pet Sounds Orchestra tour in 2000, which was a life-altering experience. Here I was seeing my idol live in the flesh. It was a fantastic show. He sang every lead on Pet Sounds, and all the rest of the set as well. He was animated, funny, and talkative, having lots to say between songs. It was by far the best time I ever saw him. At this point, my honest opinion is that he has nothing to prove to anyone, and he's loved and admired by everyone and is a literal living legend. He would be well within his rights to rest on his laurels at this point. If he still enjoys playing, then by all means he should continue. But I remain unsure if he's still enjoying himself these days. Honestly, seeing him come on stage on that last show using a walker was incredibly sad for me. Throughout the years of fandom, I've also been lucky enough to see the Beach Boys twice. Once in 1997 on Carl's last tour, and in 2012 for the 50th anniversary. Actually, the show I saw with Carl was one of his last handful of shows, so I feel incredibly lucky to have gotten the chance to see him do what he loved. We all knew he was ill, but other than the fact that he sat on a stool for the performance, he still sounded and played great. I could go on forever about how much the Beach Boys mean to me, as well as all my favorite songs and albums, but I think this is already an epic length email. Keep up the amazing work, and love and mercy to you and all your listeners and subscribers. Aaron. Thank you very much, Aaron, for the email. The first time I saw Brian was on that very tour as well in 2000. Uh, I went with my dad, and it was mind-blowing just to see Brian in the flesh. I agree, it was just a life-changing experience, and I've seen him probably about a dozen times since then, and pretty much agree with you on every account. Very similar story to mine, and I'm glad to have met you. Up next is an email from our friend, Nia D'Amelio. Hi, Wyatt. I've been thinking of writing this email since I started listening to your podcast, but I wanted to wait till I was caught up. First off, it probably goes without saying, but I love this podcast. I'm not really a podcast person, but this one I listen to religiously, and not just because it's about the Beach Boys. It's really well produced and it's fun to listen to. I've learned so much, and I also enjoy our little jokes like when you mentioned surf and earth. 
the absolute best. I feel like the universe has been trying to get me to become a Beach Boy fan since birth, but I've only really succumbed to the fandom since listening to the podcast, so I wanted to talk a little bit about my journey as a Beach Boy girl, trademark. When I was two years old, my family used to eat at this restaurant called the American Cafe in Pittsburgh, and for whatever reason, Kokomo was always on the restaurant soundtrack. I only have one memory of this, but it was apparently known by the staff as the little girl who sings Kokomo. I guess I used to sit in my high chair and of course mindlessly try to sing the chorus. And at one time I do remember it happening. Multiple waitresses came over to hear me sing it, and so I had to sing Aruba, Jamaica, and so on. A seed was planted. As I got older, my favorite TV show was Full House. I'd see Mike and Bruce and think, wow, that's cool of them to visit a family multiple times through the year. I wish they'd visit me. Hey, you're the Beach Boys. Come on in. Would you mind wiping your feet first? <laughs> and of course there was Kokomo. Kokomo was my childhood anthem. Now I had faces to voices. I also loved Forever, but for a long time I thought that was a Jesse and the Rippers original. Oh no. <laughs> in high school I found my mom's Made in the USA CD, and I'd make her play it in the car. I'd beg to hear Heroes and Villains on repeat, but she hated that song. She's more of a surfer girl fan. So whenever I listened to it, I felt like I was breaking the rules. It was exciting, and it didn't sound like anything else I'd heard the band do before. In 2012 was when I was a senior in high school. My friend had an extra ticket to the Beach Boys 50th, and that was when it really happened. I'll never forget when Brian started singing, I just wasn't made for these times. What was this song? And more importantly, what was this sound? Wasn't Mike the guy in charge? He was the one who always visited the Tanners. Who was Brian? I pretty much lost it. I started listening to a playlist I'd made of the 50th concert, and I'd dive in from there. I visited a record store and bought Pet Sounds on CD and the Smile Sessions on vinyl. I put Smile on when it was late at night, and I'd turn the volume down to the turntable so that only the music was coming from the needle on the record. I'd dance around a barnyard, and I'd cry to surf's up. I still do. Then I went to college and sort of forgot about the Beach Boys. They seemed like a moment in time for me, a passing fling. It wasn't until this past August when I saw the Beach Boys, outside Chicago, that I remembered. My dad asked me about Mike and why Brian doesn't tour with them. If you were around me, you would have thought something in me snapped. I started talking about the 50th anniversary tour and the lawsuits from the 90s and Al being sued for using the name for his own band. I quoted Mike from memory when he said, For those who think Brian walks on water, I will always be the Antichrist. I bought Brian's famous Help Me Rhonda baseball tee, and I found you guys. And now we come to the culminating event. I live in Chicago, and about three weeks ago, I drove up to Milwaukee by myself to see Brian and the Zombies. I'm also a huge Odyssey and Oracle fan, so this was too good to pass up. Seeing Brian was incredible. Watching Al and Mike and Darian and Blondie was unbelievable. And I officially have a new favorite album, Friends. I know that's a pretty long email, and there's more I could say, of course. I missed you when you came to DeKalb, but I'll be sure to keep an eye out for dates in the coming months and years. We'd love to grab an adult beverage with you and talk shop. Love and mercy from Chicago, Nia. Yeah, Nia, I'm sorry we didn't get to your email before we got to your voicemail, I believe. So, um, and yeah, I saw the zombies a couple years ago too. And um, thanks to Darian, I was able to go backstage and meet Colin Blundstone and Rod Argent and Chris White. And it was just absolutely one of the best days of my life. I'm a huge fan. Um, but yeah, looking forward to getting up to the Chicago area again, and we will hopefully have time to grab a beverage and talk friends. Thanks again. 
This is a quote from Van Dyke Parks in Endless Summer Quarterly. I thought it was important to capture the westward movement, the conquering of this continent and beyond, from Plymouth Rock to Hawaii. But more than try to tell an audience what to think, I wanted to help an audience feel that experience with some anecdotes and snapshots of the westward expansion. That had to do with the conquering of the Indian tribes. And yes, there was some sense of religion there too. With the conquering of the Indians went their concept that the land was sacred. It all came about quite by accident. We started with heroes and villains. That was the first song that we created. The other images that came beyond that simply tried to connect to that scene. Bicycle Rider, for example, is the first playing card that was used in the rough and rowdy western when people were coming this way for fortune. That thought seemed to me to be a natural extension of an image from the cantina. That's where people won and lost their fortunes in a deck of cards. That was a very important ingredient in the Wild West. It's rough and tumble. I'm not sure what Brian's or my intentions were, because so many years have passed. There's so much nuance that's lost. But it's safe to say that we wanted to create an American fantasy. At one time, one out of every hundred Americans was involved in the opening of the West. There was glory in what they did. Just in getting there, there was glory. But there was tragedy too, because someone was there first. Do You Like Worms could be considered the sibling to Cabin Essence. From what the smile participants tell us, the fragments of both were essentially written together, drawing on heroes and villains' old Western flavor to reach further back into an exploration and critique of American history, then divided up and structured into the two songs we know. You could call them the Manifest Destiny duology. Al Jardine said in 2011, There's one song on there called Do You Like Worms? I kept yelling at people over at Capitol that there's not one lyric about worms on this track. It's called Roll Plymouth Rock. I defy you to find anything about worms on there. But they wanted to name it Do You Like Worms. I'm sure there was a song that Brian and Van Dyke worked on that was called Do You Like Worms that they never played for us. Anyhow, I think that what's there on the original version of Smile is totally cool, and I do like the unfinished nature of it. It brings back a lot of really good memories. All right, let's bring them in. Here's Will and John. How are you guys doing? Doing fine. Hello. So what is going on with Al here, Will? Is he uh, is he just getting his tunes mixed up again? Yeah, Al, when, I'm a, when the Smile Sessions came out, he wanted this whole run about how there's no song called Do You Like Worms. Um, and it, it's it's called that on, I've got a list of things it's called that on here. The, the lyric sheet that was given to Frank Holmes, then the booklet artwork that he did, the titles submitted to Capitol, um, the AFM contract, the tape box, a load of press clippings. And then in the middle of the session, Brian turns around and goes, hey, it's called Do You Like Worms? So, yeah, he's having, a, he's having a Jardine moment. Here's more from Van Dyke in the Dominic Priore book. This is about Plymouth Rock, which is where we thought this all started. I don't know who came up with that title. I have a feeling it was maybe an engineer or maybe Brian or maybe Mike Love. There aren't any other words in the song that relate to that title. It's about bringing this Euro sensibility into the taming of the American continent from Plymouth Rock to Waikiki. Bicycle Rider had to do with gambling and cards and so forth, and the Church of the American Indian, of course, is the very property which we claim now. They would never have thought of ownership of the land as anything other than an obscene presumption. It's just a different attitude, but an important one. 
Ribbon of Concrete actually came from the expression Ribbon of Highway from Woody Guthrie's Pastures of Plenty, which in turn comes from a song called Pretty Polly, an ancient ballad that arrived in the Appalachian Mountains and stayed there for years. Arrested Development. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, would you take me on I wanted to keep the troubadour, this rustic folk quality, alive in the songs we were doing. I thought that was important. I wasn't interested in the music that was going on in the time. I was just wanting to keep this folkloric sensibility. Everything was folklore to us. All the images you see about the Sandwich Islands harks back to us going to Hawaii and attempting to civilize them too, with Christianity. All of those inferences can be taken from the song that is now titled, Roll Plymouth Rock. Hallelujah is a Hawaiian Thanksgiving. It's a prayer, and that was something Brian did absolutely of his own volition. I just brought in that Hawaiian collection of words. Here's smile artist Frank Holmes from Endless Summer Quarterly. Yeah, there was quite a bit of lyrics for that song. As it turned out, there wasn't much that was used from the version I had. The lyrics I worked from had to do with images of people waving from an ocean liner, and the native Indians behind that. The lyric went, once upon the Sandwich Isles, the social structure steamed upon Hawaii. Then it was rock, rock, roll, Plymouth Rock, roll over, and there's a piece called Ribbon of Concrete, See What You've Done, Done, which became Bicycle Rider. It came from the old standard CC Rider, See What You've Done, Done. I remember it went on, See What You've Done, Done to the Church of the American Indian. And there was the last part on there that went something like, Having returned to the East or West Indies, we always got them confused. It had to do with the white man's advancement. Continuing an especially productive month, on Tuesday, October 18th, Brian entered the studio again to record Do You Like Worms, the backing track, in its entirety, in four sections. Hey, Carol, did you put more lows on your bass? Uh, I Let me hear it. The first recorded was part one, encompassing the verse and the rock, rock, roll refrain. You were strumming it too hard. That's it. I knew I'd find it if I really searched and reached out. Okay, let's play it a little softer, Carol, one time. <laughs> Once again, using a relatively small group of musicians, in lieu of the Pet Sounds days, the verse is propelled along by only a single guitar, two basses, and two percussionists. Gene Estes and Jim Gordon alternate on timpani and kick drum with quiet tambourine in the early takes. And then Carol Kay is strumming her bass two notes at a time, creating a booming, steamrolling sound that evokes a colony ship breaking over the waves. Lyle Ritz bows a buzzy, high-register string bass, and the electric 12-string rhythm guitar played by Jerry Cole gives this whole thing a vaguely tropical feel. Hi, Mary. It goes up. On the two beat, okay? Let's think of the two beat and we'll have it. Let's go. Let's, let's get the feeling back. It, I think the drums have to really be aware of that donk, 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 that they're right on it. Can I ask you, let's pull Carol down just a little bit, a little bit there when he's doing that section, because it'll never come across. It's going to come out. Is that enough of it? Yeah. I can't get Here any we more go. Let's make 15. 15, please. Just ought to make it. And then arriving at the chorus, we move into a two-note bass solo. Van Dyke Parks is way off in the distance on the grand piano, probably not even mic'd up, and relying on bleed into other inputs to carry the sound. 
pattern repeats, this time joining a descending upright bass melody high up on the instrument's neck. Then the track hangs for an edit point. <laughs> oh, do you like worms? But what's that? Oh, that just might be a bass, stand-up bass, the stand-up bass pyramid. Okay, here we go. That's uh, Town Hall uh, ripped. <laughs> While demonstrating the tempo between takes, Brian looks to Van Dyke's approval and breaks into singing a fragment of unrecorded vocal melody. Right, Van? One, two. 24 takes were needed, and they reached the master. The next section to be recorded was part three, the Hawaiian Bridge. This time Jim Gordon hits a conga drum with mallets. Gene Estes provides rolls on the timpani, the two basses play single notes in unison, and Van Dyke's piano is allocated its own track, so to feature it more prominently in the mix. Jerry Cole sat out of the proceedings until a later overdub. A little bit slow. Drums were a little slow. Eleven. Like this. One, two, one. The rhythm track has a very back rack feel to it. And I, I think it's because of that two chord vamp, the G minor seventh to C minor seventh. That first G minor seventh, it's, it sounds like the same inversion that back rack uses for uh, walk on by. Uh, it's just very jet setter in, in a Polynesian kind of way. The band got it faster this time, but Brian was locked in and looking for perfection. Sorry, hey, I'm sorry about that, but it's not happening. I think you probably know when it's happening, right? Let's make it happen, please. One five. Like this. One, two, one. Take 15 was the master, lasting for six rounds before breaking down. The session went into overtime. Then Brian, Van Dyke, and Jerry Cole stayed another hour from 6.30 to finish up. Switching to a six-string electric, Jerry overdubbed a tripped-out slide guitar to the bridge. Great as this part is, it would be unfortunately buried by Brian as he dubbed the track down onto another tape to add vocals, perhaps deciding it made the arrangement too cluttered.
Next, attention turned to parts two and four, the haunting bicycle rider theme. Fourteen. Probably the signature piece of smile music, if there is such a thing. Part two was the main chorus, or bridge, whatever you want to call it. Two rounds of a creeping G minor to a C7 music box melody. This is part four, take two. Part four comprised a reprise of the theme. Taking Spectre instrument combo principles down to a miniature level, Brian and Van Dyke play harpsichord and piano in unison, while Jerry doubles the melody on electric guitar. It's one of those things that evokes the ideas and the, the themes without having lyrics, which is awesome. And it's part of what makes Smile so cool. It's very descriptive musically. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's all that pictorial music again. It's, um, and there's, there's so much here that's just, you know, where, did, you, where you just have to think, where did it come from? Because it's not, like, it's Pet Sounds, the whole album has this one sort of homogenous sound, which is in no way a bad thing. It's a great thing for that album, but with this, it's every song. He was going into record has its own completely unique style and, and color to it. Um, yeah, for sure. There's little things as well, like Carol strum, strumming her bass here. She's doing two notes at a time. And like, when did, when did Brian ever do that? Where did that come from? You know? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts of this track is the end of part four, when you just have the piano and the harpsichord just playing those two notes. And it's Brian and Van Dyke kind of just like mm-hmm. randomly going back and forth. And... I wonder what the vocal arrangement would have sounded like on top of that. I mean, probably would have blown our minds, but... I think, I mean, yeah, this this isn't... Um, to the, the Frank Holmes lyrics, that um, having returned to the East or West Indies, we always got them confused. I mean, it, it's um, the, the words are kind of the same meter as Bicycle Rider. So I've always thought that it, there would have been sung over that, and then the word confused would kind of go over that, you know, part of the end where the, the harpsichord and piano are yeah. just going... Da-da-da-da-da-da. It's kind of a, a musical Yeah, because that's another... That. That would have been another example of the music completely portraying perfectly what the lyrics are saying. And I, yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's the only place I can, I can really think of where that, those lyrics could go. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to bring up that little melody snippet oh, as God, well yeah, that yeah, we you can hear up. Brian talk about. When this, um, when this first came out in 2011, it prompted a whole lot of discussion about if that was kind of the real melody of Worms or whatever. Um, and I don't. Mm. I think it was more like a counter melody um, to the, to the main one, just because of the way he sings it. It's so kind of quick; yeah. it doesn't cover the whole set of lyrics. But I mean, I think this is one where we probably should talk about the two thousand four version a little bit because it's it's a case where there's you know some melody and lyrics that existed in sixty six that you know just weren't recorded back then. So we're working on it. We get to one word, and Brian gets stuck on it. And he's trying to sing it. He's like, God damn it! What is that word? She picks up the phone and starts dialing. Hi, Van Dyke, this is Brian. You know the song, Do You Like Worms? 
Brian called me to ask me what an indecipherable word was, and that word was Indians, and I'm so glad I could remember it. As soon as the session was over, Brian um, got Carl and went over to Columbia to edit it together and do some vocals. And on the edited, uh, Brian edited together the entire backing track at this point, just from these four sections, but he copied them and cut them up in, in really interesting ways. And he didn't end up using the part two bicycle rider. He must have just decided that part four, the second half of it, the fade part, would, worked better as a chorus. So he cut that out and used a little bit of part two to have an ending to it. Um, so he, he edited together this entire full backing track that they then could overdub vocals to. And then, so on that October 18 session, Brian and Carl both sang the, the rock, rock, roll, two-bar harmony thing. Rock, rock, roll, Plymouth rock, roll, first set of rock roll, Plymouth rock roll over lyrics start on the one of the first bar. But the second set starts on the two of the first bar. It's always sort of made me a little disoriented uh, until I really looked and, and saw what was going on. It's quite, quite amazing to me. And then they also had like a, a first attempt at singing the bridge lead vocal the Hawaiian part. I think it's really cool how they start off on beat and they're playing with the electric bass downbeats when they sing the words rock, rock, roll. And then on the second pass that they do it an eighth note later and they're singing rock, rock, roll on the upbeats. Um, and that sort of confused some of, the, some of the players during the session because Brian told them, oh, you guys are not feeling the one beat right. It comes in here. Um, because it's just such a weird syncopated thing and it's just so hard to understand listening to it <laughs> yeah that that whole part i mean it's strange enough as it is but it's that whole you know the buried piano thing where i think it probably was mic'd up after listening to other parts of the session but then it was just turned down so much that you barely even when the vocals are over it it's just like a bass to an one note occasionally another note it's just c to like occasionally goes to a um yeah i mean part of me kind of wishes i could hear it better but i really do like that far away effect it gives so on December 2nd, there was a session documented only for Child is Father of the Man. But we know they also worked on Do You Like Worms that evening, thanks to an article on the NME poll victory by Tracy Thomas, published on December 16th, but reported the day the results were announced on the 2nd. America Calling, Beach Boys Stunned Over Poll News by Tracy Thomas. Whom did we beat in the NME poll, cried Beach Boy Mike Love, when greeted with the news that the Beach Boys had indeed beaten the Beatles by 100 votes. The faces of all Beach Boys reflected awe rather than sheer joy, speechlessness rather than overflowing exuberance. I can't believe it, said Al Jardine, sitting down unconsciously as if weighted down. That news that their album, The Best of the Beach Boys, had knocked the Sound of Music soundtrack out of its perennial spot at the top of the US LP charts was received similarly. Wow, Bruce exclaimed. I just can't believe we're that popular. 
Brian watched benignly as the five others wandered around in a semi-daze, then said, All right, into the studio. We've got work to do. So Dennis took off his Royal Canadian Mounted Police hat, and Al carefully folded his English Bobby's cape, and in they trooped to begin recording their voices for the Hawaiian-influenced track, sung in Hawaiian, no less. Reported by Al later, This is by far the best thing we've ever done. Everything, the music, lyrics, singing, background, everything's perfect. And we thought Pet Sounds was fine. What the hell is that thing about Al's cape? (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't, I was going to try and find a picture of that. But um, yeah, I mean, this is really cool. First time I've seen this article. I like Um, how Dennis was wearing a police hat too. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't know exactly which parts they recorded here. But based on what Al said, they probably did the background harmonies for the bridge, uh, part three. A six-part backing vocal arrangement, which is not very common. They usually, even if they have all six singing, they would do a four or five-part harmony. But they've got all six doing different things here. So it's Bruce, Brian, Al, Carl, Dennis, and Mike going from the highest to the lowest notes. And they're all just singing ooze, and then after a round or two, Carl breaks off and he sings his own little melody. And they did this and double-tracked it, and then bounced that all down to a, a single track. And then on top of that, Brian and Carl did this humming part this really high humming part. It, I, I love this part. It, I mean, I've seen people think it was a guitar, and even in 2004 they thought some of this was a guitar just because it sounds so weird. But it's just, um, it's just, yeah, it's just Brian and Carl humming, and it's it's a really freaky effect. I mean, I did I did think it was a kazoo, honestly, the first time I heard oh, it. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> until I isolated yeah. it and found out it's, um, you can tell it's Brian and Carl, just two-part harmony. They just go, <laughs> Right. Predating. I mean, it was pretty awesome because, like, at the time, you didn't have a lot of pop music that, that did that. I mean, obviously, this never saw the light of day, but, yeah. you know, you, you go on, you know, and have bands like Queen that, would do stuff like this all the time oh yeah and this i mean that's kind of smiles whole thing isn't it it's um pet sounds you have all this complicated backing tracks with 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 like one person singing lead over the top and smile it's often quite it's often like very simple especially worms which is just like you know this clunky sort of big booming kettle drum backing track and then over the top of it all the voices of the instruments so after these these backing vocals on part three there was an earlier version of brian and carl singing the hawaiian lyrics but he replaced this with his own vocal and he didn't double track this or anything. So this is another rare example of just Brian using a single tracked vocal uh, in the mid 60s, which he didn't really do consistently again until around Friends, I guess. Mahalalule, mahalalula, kiniwakapula. Mahalalule, mahalalula. It was kind of in fashion to double track all of your vocals a lot in the mid '60s, and this is you know Pet Sounds they doubled absolutely everything whenever they could, apart from a few background parts. But in Smile, it's kind of it's starting to get to there are a few you know there are, there are a few single track parts coming up here, and um, yeah, the, the the Beatles did that as well. I mean, listening to Hard Day's Night, they doubled everything, and then 
as they got onto Rubber Soul and Revolver, they were starting to just have single vocals and other bands at the time was like the monkeys as well were doing that and it was just coming back in fashion to have more natural voices so brian goes back and forth with that exactly oh as well just to confirm as well what brian's singing it's not it's not real it's it's not it's not a sentence that makes sense Um, yeah yeah and and also on top of that van dyke mentions that um the first couple lines are like a hawaiian prayer mahalo lule but brian doesn't even sing it exactly clearly he kind of like adds a w on like wahalo yeah 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 he kind of goes wahalo like he does like this weird thing with his lips Mm. (laughs) where he puts like an mw sound on there mahalo is thanks in hawaii so it's kind of kind of got there i get the impression that brian went to van dyke and said i want a sort of hawaiian thanksgiving thing and van dyke just went hey i know hawaiian sing this um but it's just (laughs) people people who speak hawaiian have just said no this is gibberish it doesn't make any sense apart from that one word um well yeah i mean i don't think he had any friends that spoke hawaiian so he just was like ah this is close enough i'll just i'm sure this means something in hawaii (laughs) that whole thing together i think is one of my favorite i think van dyke and brian have both singled out as one of the favorite bits of smile music as well it's so trippy and peaceful and especially it's it's, i wish they hadn't mixed out that that slide guitar because that's so that that's like guitar part is just insane. It's it's such a weird, messy mm, part. Yeah. Um, but with all the vocals on top of it, the backing parts are so kind of like chilled out, in a way that I don't think I've heard them sing elsewhere. They all sound like really. I I don't I, I don't know. It's just a. It's, it's a really cool piece of music. Yeah, it does feel like a, you know, kind of a precursor to Smiley Smile or even Friends. Yeah, very um, kind of kind of little you know, it's like you're just drifting over the ocean with these like it's a, i feel like i feel like the, the big timpani sort of rolls feel like like it crashing against rocks or something like i don't know yeah he <laughs> puts, sure. image, puts images in the head um yeah so the other thing they might have done in this session because again the only there aren't any proper session dates for the for the deal like worms vocals there's um a tape that was labeled december 21st which was for the verse back and um, backing vocals but the rest there's no date it was assumed that the rest were 21st as well but you know because of that article we kind of figured out that they must have done the other backing parts, or at least some of them, on the second. So the other ones they recorded on this all edited track for Do You Like Worms. Um, with the first Bicycle Rider chorus, they didn't do both Bicycle Rider choruses. They just concentrated on vocals for the first one. So you've got Al doing a sort of spooky, like, ba-ba-ba scat vocal. Um, and then it's, I spent so much time listening to this to try and figure out who it is, but it's Brian, Colin, Mike doing this low, weird grunting, like, rhythmic sort of grunting noises that <laughs> yeah. people that sounds suspiciously like hooked on a feeling um, and there's right, like one yeah. layer where they're all doing the same thing in unison and then another one where they're all doing their own thing and uh, yeah I don't want to talk about the time that I spent like about an hour about an hour trying to listen to that and figure out who, who was doing <laughs> what um, but yeah so on december 21st 1966 columbia studio a this session saw the addition of group verse backing vocals but not onto the edited track onto a separate eight track tape derived from the original part one section the reason for adding these worms parts onto a separate tape are unclear. It might be just that Brian didn't want to pull off the tricky vocal arrangement twice, and he was later going to make a copy and splice it to the rest of the track, or it was redestined for another song. And we're not really sure, but probably the former. It's once again all six of them all doing different things um, and double tracked again. So you have 
Carl, Al, and Bruce are all singing this three-part harmony going hum. And then on top of that, Dennis, on every every couple measures, he goes bum. And then on top of that, Brian does that crazy la-la top part, the high part. And Mike does the, the bass vocal, which is really cool. I really like that bass vocal. More semi, more semi sort of Hawaiianish nonsense. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and when when they did um, the 2011 mix and the 93 mix as well on the Good Vibrations box set. The reason this wasn't on the bootlegs is because it was on, it was done on a different tape that they didn't find until later. Um, but on both of those mixes, it's only in the second verse. But you know, the, with the way Brian worked in in the Smiley era, it would have probably been on both verses. You know, he didn't tend to change things up. It was it was the same on each. So that kind of I actually got I, I got talking to someone once who kind of said that um, the instrumentals on Smiler nowhere near as good as they are on Pet Sounds. You know, because the, there's just nowhere near as much going on and they tend to be quite sort of rigid and repeat the same patterns over and over again but the thing with the thing with smile next to pat sounds is the vocals are the other half of it much more than we were in pat sounds the, the 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 vocals you know fill the role of instruments and when you put them together with this track it's just a whole sort of big colorful bed of like all these sounds swirling around each other and that that that's i think the the, the main difference in in recording style between these two albums and it's kind of a shame that so many sections ended up without vocals because you know that they, they they don't sound as complete as they probably should be. Yeah, um, on pet sounds where he'd have clarinets doing a counter melody and then an organ doing another counter melody, he'd just do that with vocals on here. Yeah, definitely. Like writing in the same way, but then arranging it differently. So the next thing Brian did was he chopped out. Brian went back to the edited version of Worms, the whole track, made a copy of that, and chopped out just the first bicycle rider um, chorus that had already been given some overdubs. And then on either December 27th or 28th, or both of them, these were two late December sessions at Columbia that was just Brian working by himself. He went and added a whole load of extra stuff to Bicycle Rider. He kept the two sort of tracks of of, grunt, of um, tribal grunting, whatever you want to call it. And then he replaced Al's ba-ba-ba part um, with his own vocals. He did, it, he did his own backing vocal there and sang a double, lead, a double track lead vocal and a short little do what you've done to counterpoint. And he also added a kick drum that goes on top of all this stuff. As the tape stands now, it's on a tape with a Heroes and Villains verse track. Most of the parts were erased after he did this, but the titles there were Heroes and Villains, Wonderful, and Who Ran the Iron Horse. So that means either, you know, it was already in Heroes and Villains, or maybe it was going to be put together with Cap and Essence, because there's this odd quote from Michael Vossian in the 69 Fusion interview where he talks about how Brian and Van Dyke were thinking about putting together Who Ran the Iron Horse with Bicycle Rider, and these two songs were going to be integrated together and stuff, and... You know, maybe that was early on while I was still writing the songs, or maybe it was later once they'd recorded it and they were already chopping things up. Um, but there's an acetate from one of these two dates, probably, that has the Cabin Essence chorus on it, and then two different mixes of Bicycle Rider with the different overdubs on, and then uh, the Heroes and Villains verse with Brian's lead vocals. Um, 
And then a few days later, in early January, he went and added some more stuff to it. I'm trying to think about how cabin essence fits with bicycle rider. I, I don't, don't know, but that's something that came I up. I can't figure I think that a out. A few different people said that. It's they're, they're in the same key, or the, at least the chorus of cabin essence is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was saying. And, and they, they wrote all these fragments separately, but then they sort of organized them into worms and then cabin essence. They weren't really written as full songs. And then Heroes and Villains is about to come in and screw this all up. It's like a serial killer just going chopping through every song. <laughs> I mean, it just completely just yeah. destroyed everything. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. We haven't even talked about um, the title of <laughs> the song yet. Yeah, do, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Dig, I dig bugs. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea where the title. This is, I mean, do you like I've worms? An, comes I mean, from. I've got it's an bizarre. interpretation of it, and other people, are, quite a few people, other people have come to the same thing, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination either. It's like, what do you get when you roll over Plymouth Rock worms? Um, you know, okay, it, it's like a sort of tongue-in-cheek question, like rolling over Plymouth Rock and looking at like everything that America was founded on, all this, the massacre of like the Native Americans and all that stuff, and. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's really too far, to, right. too much of a stretch to imagine that that's what was behind the title, and they just kind of forgot it over time. I don't know where that bootleg title came from as well. Do you dig worms? It kind of turns it into a, more of a pun, which is probably a bit too oh, much. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I like that yeah. as much, but I don't think that's something Brian or Van Dyke came up with. That, that just no, yeah, I think that's just something that someone thought. You know, like means dig, and people dig worms. So, turn the page. We're on January of nineteen sixty-seven. On the 5th, Brian returned to Western for a sweetening session that added extra instrumentation to Bicycle Rider. Logged on the contract and session worksheet under the title Heroes and Villains Part 2. Bill Pittman, Lyle Ritz, and Van Dyke Parks respectively played six-string bass with a fuzz tone, upright, and harpsichord. Another one, sharing the same unison line in octaves. The idea to have Van Dyke double the part on a harpsichord is unusual, but an effective one, giving the part a sharp edge to cut through an otherwise busy mix. Both he and Brian stayed at the studio from 9 to 10 p.m. after the other two musicians departed, but the reason for this extra time remains unclear. More vocals were added onto the two open tracks, but not on January 5th. The presence of the other Beach Boys pushes it to the group session on the 20th at the earliest. On one track, Brian tripled his scat vocal and on another, he tripled his lead while Bruce sang a ghostly high harmony. Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Nighttime would find me in Rose's Cantina, music would play and Felina would whirl. Here's Van Dyke from Dominic Priori's book. Brian says I made up the title, Heroes and Villains. I think he's lying. I think he made that up. I think it was a great title and he suggested it. 
To me, Heroes and Villains sounds like a ballad out of the Southwest. That's what it was intended to be. The Spanish and Indian fascination is a big chapter in Californian history. And I think that's what it's supposed to be. Historically reflective, to reflect this place. I think it did it. Mike Love said that I wasn't interested in making lyrics that people could understand. That's not true. I was interested, very much, in a relatable lyric. To me, El Paso was the role model for heroes and villains. It's an archetype. Eggs and grits and lickety split. I'm in the grape shape of the agriculture. Obviously, Brian had come up with some more notes there, so the lyrics are once again following the notes. He decided not to include those notes or that section in Heroes and Villains, but put them in another place later. But it's interesting how there was all of a sudden this turning to eggs and grits. It's because it had something to do with the thought of a barnyard, and that related to that place that we were trying to come up with in Heroes and Villains. All those lyrics were visual efforts. I caught a good one, it looked like it could run Up on its back and away I did ride Just as fast as I could From the West Texas town of El Paso Back to the badlands of New Mexico Back in El Paso my life would be worthless What I remember is the first thing we did was, was Heroes and Villains. Oh my God. Whole yeah. bunch of notes. That was cool. That was one of the highlights of my life, that song. That, w that scared the hell out of me. I mean, just as, in terms of words, I, as I recall it, we got lucky, we got some wind at our back, we <laughs> sat there one day, and we knocked that thing to the, we knocked it to the ground right away. Uh, we, it we, just came We nailed hands. it, we did. All right, so Thursday, October 20th, 1966, at Western Recorder Studio 3. At this session, Brian tackled two sections, the main verse and a piece called Barnyard. Unfortunately, the session tapes are missing, so we don't have any early takes to talk about, or even any stereo mixes of these sections. Thankfully, we still have the master takes via Brian's mono transfers on the other tapes. That's when I realize how much snap, crackle, and pop you were going to bring to this thing. The verse section here is one of the most overtly Spectorian pieces of music Brian had recorded in a while, right out of Spectre's then-recent Ike and Tina Turner production of Save the Last Dance for Me. Same acoustic guitar, piano, eighth-note feel, same drum beat, identical bass figure, that track didn't see a proper release in the US until 1969. But listen to this for yourself, and you'll be sure that there's no way Brian hadn't heard it by the time he got around to doing Heroes. The first part of Save the Last Dance for me is verse is unusual. It, it's ten bars long, uh, two five-bar sections. What Brian did was to insert a bar between bars three and four and bars eight and nine, making it a twelve-bar verse made up of two six-bar sections. Then he makes one chord substitution at bar five, changing a five chord to a two chord. This is his translation of what that of that progression. It's now his. It's, it's a Beach Boys thing, I think. At least that's what I hear. 
But while Spectre's track is cavernous and poppy, Brian's is tight, earthy, and completely removed from whatever you'd expect an attempt at a hit single in 1966 to sound like. The chord progression, like many smile tracks, is very simple. Just moving from D-flat to E-flat, down to A-flat 7, back to D-flat. Van Dyke plays the piano here. Bill Pittman is likely on acoustic, with Carl Kay and Lyle Ritz playing electric and arco bass. The Pittman K configuration is not confirmed, but Carol has recalled playing this line, and it does sound closer to her Fender bass tone. And then Jim Gordon thwacks a thunderous floor tom on beats two and four. At the end of each phrase, when the title line would be sung, Gene Estes blows a comical Acme siren whistle, and George Hyde plays a vaudeville-esque riff on French horn, ending with a flutter tone. Brian singled this flourish out as music directly inspired by Rhapsody in Blue. This section was recorded much like the Bridge of Worms. The band played the same round of chords until Brian asked them to stop, as if they were recording a fade. This left the option open for Brian to end with a vocal transition and play around with the structure of the song, as he was soon to do over and over again. The next section recorded this day, from 5 to 7.30 p.m., was the Barnyard segment. Based upon the nature of the recording and a later demo performance, it's likely that this was planned to be the fade-out version of Heroes, the instrumentation here is quite a departure from the verse, with the introduction of an electric guitar, Jim Gordon and Gene Estes playing conga and maracas instead of drums and whistle, and George Hyde's French horn swapped out for Tommy Morgan's bass harmonica, honking to affirm the end of each phrase. Music here is a simple two-bar vamp with the electric guitar playing a reverb-laden childlike riff and Van Dyke doubling what would be the vocal melody on piano with tape strings. Both basses begin on the same repeated quarter notes. Then in the fourth round, the upright moves to a bowed counter melody, presumably where the track would start to fade. After the master take was recorded, Brian got together with his friends and had them overdub several farm animal noises. had this whole section i've had kind of it's just it it kind of perplexes me that like brian did good vibrations and then his follow-up single was going to be um you know this thing where it's just it's not like you can't it doesn't it's great i mean it's really it's got a lot of energy and it fits the track really well but like you don't you just don't picture it as like a sort of hit single on the radio like it's got a really kind of earthy acoustic feeling of it um to it you know like yeah. there is an electric bass in there but it's just like the the tap piano and the acoustic guitar are really buried, and you end up kind of like good vibrations where the 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 the, the instruments playing the chords are just buried down on the track, and it ends up as this big bass and drums thump. So maybe he's gone for that again, but it's it's more yeah. it's it's it feels like it's leaning more towards putting you in a place like the rest of Smile than it is trying to be a hit single. Right. It feels more like kind of concentrated on like the images than it is yeah. trying to be commercial. Yeah, I agree with that. It it, it is it, very upbeat though, so it, it is yeah, very. It sounds like a train with with yeah the with the um the bowed upright bass kind of grinding right up against the mic. It's it's like a train like the wheels going around. It's it's similar to Cavernessence in that sense. That's what I, I always heard anyway from 
the first time hearing it, I always pictured in my head it was like a train going through this this small town and all these vocals like dancing around it, like horses and stuff. And that's again, that's just the smile thing where it puts images in your head and the siren whistle as well. <laughs> just, I mean, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> that's that's so weird. I never understood how it was going to fit in with heroes and villains, but I mean, it works in a sense if you listen to it enough but the two parts just are so different to me that it's yeah, just I hard mean, ha- to having having been used to juxtapose yeah that. having been used to all the other versions that were actually put together mm-hmm. um it's weird to kind of imagine all this stuff being a cohesive song because it starts off as this like old western like kind of thing and then and then it's back all home. of a sudden you get <laughs> all of a sudden yeah <laughs> yeah all of a sudden you get this stuff about like farms well we'll talk about that when we get to november 4th as well because oh, yeah. i don't think yeah, brian yeah. had any idea how these were gonna you know transition together yeah. but um now it's time for will to shine of course because <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the barnyard backing vocals well um well not if backing you could vocals, even call but, them backing vocals you but. know <laughs> brian and his friends did some animal backing noises sounds. on this yeah and because i'm insane <laughs> i tried to figure out which friends are doing what animal um <laughs> so the sheep's van dyke parks you know you can hear the sheep in it it's it's a very van dyke park sheep the way he goes bah you know, in a very ba- in a very fun <laughs> way. And there's uh, June Fairchild, the actress who was with Danny Hutton at the time, was at the session, and according to him, she was making all these weird noises. And there's this squeaky. I don't even. I think it's supposed to be a bird. I don't even know what it is. It doesn't sound like a barnyard animal, um, <laughs> but I'm sure that must be her because it doesn't sound like a guy. And then there are two like fighting cats that are the, the most aggressive cat impressions I've ever heard in my life. And I don't know why Brian <laughs> thought of a farm and immediately thought two cats, but you know, and I think that might be Danny Hutton and Michael Vossi just from, from hearing them speak. And then at the end, there's a cow that goes moo. And I think that might be David Anderley. I think. It sounds like his voice. So, you know, that's... This is, this is ridiculous. Guillotine me. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. Um, there you go. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> now we thank you for your service. <laughs> no, I'm just off to jump out a window. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> he just signed different, <laughs> different animals. And, of course, the first fight would be, I want to be the wolf. I want to be, you know. And then we would make animal noises. Okay, so apparently Brian listened listened back to this section, um, and here's a little bit from a t- uh, Teen Set article. It says Brian sits in his bedroom playing the background track to Heroes and Villains for a reporter from New York. As the barnyard section comes over the speaker, Brian leaps off his bed. I've got it! He laughs and jumps into the center of the room. It's a color short, sixteen millimeter. I'll shoot it next week. It's a chicken, and the chicken is wearing tennis shoes. The chicken is wearing tennis shoes, and he is bopping around the most beautiful pad, Paul Robbins's pad. Somebody get Robbins on the phone. We've got to shoot it next week. I'm so sad this didn't get made. I mean, so as far sad. as we know, it didn't. What did Paul Robbins' house look like? I, I need context. I just want to see Brian trying to put tennis shoes on a chicken. I I always pictured, I never pictured a real chicken. I always pictured like a giant chicken costume. <laughs> <laughs> be Who knows? That's what I've had in my head the whole time. It felt real kind of almost made me dizzy. We were on such a creative role. I almost got dizzy. <laughs> I almost got dizzy. One week later, Brian was back at Western to record more heroes and villains. This time, the Waltz Time Bridge, known as I'm in Great Shape, or simply Great Shape, also ambiguously marked Brian and Van Dyke songs on the tape box. Let's just try something. It might be nice. 
Initial takes started with Van Dyke playing chords on Celeste and Jay Migliori playing the melody on tenor sax. These early runs are extremely atmospheric. The combination of 3-4 and the use of Celeste really make it sound like something out of the Nutcracker. Throughout the recording process, a tape echo feedback effect is applied live from the booth by Brian and or Chuck Britz. You know the note, uh, hey man. Yeah. A flat that you're coming up with on? Uh, hit that much easier. So Van Dyke moved over to the tack piano, and the track took a heavier tone. At least two takes received a second tack piano overdub by Brian. This methodical experimentation is an unusual outlier in the land of Beach Boys production thus far, reviewing and overdubbing multiple takes before moving on to the next slightly revised arrangement. Compounding the unique nature of the session, it's another one where Brian hauled along his own Scully 280 8-track machine to Western, though he never filled more than three tracks at once. By 5.30, harpist Dorothy Victor was called upon to perform on a third set of takes. And Brian didn't even like harps. Again, strange. Her instrument was treated with delay doubled by Van Dyke on a different upright piano with tape strings. Take 37 was the final master, to which Brian overdubbed a syncopated electric bass part. That delay effect, it shows up again in um, on Wild Honey on the organ solo. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is pretty cool. But no, I never see that get mentioned anywhere, but it's the same mm-hmm. thing, whatever, whatever he did to it. I'm sure someone with technical knowledge knows how that happened, but... Yeah, I like the Celeste. I kind of... I kind of... I, I wish that he, wish they had he stuck it, with yeah. that. It's very... But, you know. Yeah, me too. I think that one sounds the coolest. It, it, no, it's very uncool, John. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Brian is wrong there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was... I don't know what his inspiration was for... I mean, I guess the the later takes sound more... Tight together. Earthy and, and yeah, well, more faster, tight. Well, faster, you know. I can't imagine the Celeste thing coming after the verse of Heroes and Villains because it's just too kind of drifting, but I, I, yeah, I like it, it more. and it sounds more like uh, a barnyard than than the Celeste, but I, I yeah. still like the Celeste the best. Me too. Yeah. It's, it's again. It's the whole, it's that whole image thing. I mean, this is this is just me, but the way I heard each arrangement, it's like each one has it's like its own time of day sort of. This those takes with with Celeste, it's like really sleepy, and I kind of imagine like like a barnyard at night sort of, and then the heavy one with the two yeah. pianos together. I kind of I, I always picture that as like a big heavy sort of wagon, like sure. going along a dusty road, and then the final one, it's it's just Brian waking up in the morning and getting some eggs, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's it's more evocative of that, I'd say. Of, of the lyrics. It's just all of these are really evocative pieces of music. You, you, you see things yeah. when you hear them. Well, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to use the Celeste version on the uh, Sail On version of <laughs> Smile. 
Just make a oh, note. Sure. Make a note. Oh, the, of it. the final one has the bass part though, which is so good. It's 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 the only one of it's um you know Brian did bass on probably did bass on that's not me, and this is the first thing he played bass on in God knows how long, and it's um mm. just interesting that there's so few and far between cases of Brian playing bass once he stopped touring. You know, a week later on November fourth, right after recording the Surfs Up first movement track, Brian and his friends gathered together on the vacant Western studio floor to get weird. They spent the rest of the night taping a quarter-inch reel of unusual experimental recordings, which we know as psychedelic sounds. And we will cover that in a later episode, don't worry. This culminated in a visit from KHJ Radio DJ and convicted murderer, (laughs) Humble Harv Miller. I forgot about that. (laughs) After a few brief discussions of Good Vibrations and the boys' current tour, Brian decided to play a little bit of Heroes and Villains on the piano. Our next record is called Heroes and Villains. Hey, Van, let's do it. Okay. You're still nowhere near. One, two, three. 
Yeah, I mean, the way he goes into great shape, it seems kind of an intentional segue. But then after that, he sort of just runs out of, he runs out of music and then just goes, um, okay, here's another section and skips ahead to Barnyard. Because he already... Well, yeah, you know, he studio, never but... goes back into heroes and villains. It's just sort of, you know, he's like, okay, yeah. well, that's it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and there's definitely more verses that were written at the time because mm-hmm. Van Dyke said they were all written together. Yeah, they did, the, they did all the verses of the song the first night they wrote the song together, so... So I guess he just didn't know how to get how the song was going to return to that and just went, all right, here's another section. We're not quite done. Mm. And that's completely different to everything else we'd done so far. You know, I don't think Brian had ever done something where he hadn't structured a full song yet. And they still, they started doing vocals for it as well, even before he'd recorded the rest of the song. He didn't do any more on this until the Beach Boys got back from touring. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, that's the difference between Heroes and Villains and all the other songs like Cabin Essence and Good Vibrations. At least he knew exactly how that song was going to start finish and everything in between uh, every time and he changed his mind with a couple of those but he never like had no idea what was going to happen in the middle of the song yeah and thanks to you know working on it thanks to thanks to phil and thanks to jim and thanks to thanks to humble half it, it sort of became the murderer of smile <laughs> picking up picking up all the influence <laughs> and chopped up all these other songs and it should be said that um in the 2004 version they had the lyrics in the great shape of the agriculture. Oh, yeah. yeah. But if you listen closely here, and there's some other sources that point to this as well, he's actually singing in the great shape of the open country. So either they got the words wrong there or it was like a conscious change. But either way, he's singing open country. Yeah, I, I think it was probably demo. it was probably a mixture of can't tell what he was singing there, so they just changed it um, more than a conscious change or just not knowing or getting it wrong i think it was probably just a case of it was yeah. too hard to hear so they did something new but if you listen really carefully it, it's definitely open country and that opening one as well where um the 2004 lyric he sings fresh clean air but this one he kind of mumbles it he just goes fresh yeah um yeah. so i don't know if that's brian i don't know if it's he's actually singing another word there or if it always was fresh clean air and he just kind of flubbed it on the spot because he does got other lyrics elsewhere in this thing wrong he sings taken as lost and gone instead of taken for lost and gone. And then he also um, sings yeah. Hit the Dirt. And then the second time around when he sings the barnyard thing again, he re- correct he just sings that again, but then he corrects himself and sings Stomp the Dirt. So, it, he, you know, he's flipping lyrics here and there. So maybe he was already, maybe it was always fresh, clean air and he just didn't quite sing it right. Who knows? Was this about the same time that they brought in the tumbling mats into his house when he was <laughs> obsessed with like fitness? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Well, he decided one night that he wanted to, uh, for all of us to be healthy. So he somehow got rid of all the furniture that was in the living room, and they were all. Uh, we I walked in, and it, the whole living room was just blue mats, blue <laughs> tumbling mats. I wasn't into physical fitness at that time. No, I wasn't into it. I wanted other people to exercise, but I really didn't want to do it. I was too lazy to do it. Well, he would uh, be the team leader and get everybody do, doing exercises in the pool. Come on, this is good for you. And then after a while, you start going, I don't want to. It's cold out, man. I don't. <laughs> yeah, there's a contradiction there that I, I didn't want to do it myself, but I want other people to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, this was like kind of the beginning of a long, you know, kind of on again, off again obsession that brian had with with health and and exercise that he obviously it was more like do as i say not as i do type thing but um because he was i think he was really his passions laid in um 
sleeping and eating sandwiches and steaks <laughs> and but he loved Pretty he much. loved the idea of being healthy and health food and supplements and we'll get into that later with the radiant radish and all that but um it always <laughs> it always cracked me up that he was a guy who was obviously clearly not himself in great shape <laughs> was always talking <laughs> about it and interested in it but hey you know again here's from teen set in 1966 it is a crisp, clear November night, and from Brian Wilson's living room, high atop Beverly Hills, the city glistens in patterns of light. Wilson sits at his piano. Jules Siegel, Saturday Evening Post's top music journalist, lies on the floor playing catch with Banana, Wilson's beagle. Banana is indefatigable. Siegel has been throwing the ball for 20 minutes. His arm is tired. Banana could go on all night. Wilson turns to no one in particular and speaks. You are my sunshine. Can happen another way. Listen. He plays a mournful series of chord patterns while singing a sad revision of the song. You were my sunshine, my only sunshine. The next night he is back at Gold Star in a studio full of cellos, strings, and percussion performing those same poignant chords. There is no sheet music. There hasn't been time for that. Brian is doing the arrangement on the spot. He prefers to work that way, like Fellini on the set with no script, scurrying about whispering snatches of dialogue into his player's ears. So they're referring to November 14th here at Gold Star, where we saw an eight-piece string section joining Brian's regular cast of musicians, here to record the two-part backing track for a spontaneous addition to the Smile lineup titled My Only Sunshine. Part one here is a strange medley between two songs, the standard The Old Master Painter and a new minor key version of You Are My Sunshine, with lyrics moved into the past tense and the music completely rewritten. Van Dyke had no involvement in its creation. The Old Master Painter isn't so much a cover as it is a brief instrumental statement to introduce Sunshine. The cellos play the vocal melody while the violins and violas add some pizzicato flourishes in the background between breaks. The Old Master Painter painted the violets and the daffodils, a rainbow for the rainy days. Then came his masterpiece. He smiled down from heaven and he gave me you. That's pretty awesome. The old master painter is God. There isn't much to this arrangement. The violas navigate the new melody and the violins and cellos hold chords. It isn't full of moving parts like Don't Talk. The other accompaniment here is Bill Pittman playing the six string bass notes on the upbeats before each measure. Plus Jim Gordon keeping time by clicking his drumsticks. Once the song resolves, there's a short tenor sax solo by Jay Migliori, somewhat reminiscent of his part for I'm in Great Shape, and Lyle Ritz's bass joins the rest of the strings as they slowly make a descent to the lowest note each instrument can play. During a vocal session for I Know There's an Answer, Brian randomly starts singing the old master painter to warm oh, up. Oh, yeah. Nice. You should hear this cat. It's unbelievable. He took the devils in the heaven. He took a rainbow for a rainy day. I don't know. Let's go. The old master painter from the far away. Here we go. Here we go. He's about 60, I think. Part two is a long fade out. Simple A flat seven to D flat round. That's a musical cousin of Barnyard. In the early days of Smile Bootlegging, it was often incorrectly thought to be barnyard by some. 
and subsequently nicknamed False Barnyard or Barnshine by fans. Its first few takes were very different in style to the eventual master. It began more as a countryish jig, featuring a jaunty pizzicato string arrangement over lurching drums, basses, and Carol Kay's acoustic guitar. It's arguably more chickens bobbing up and down than the real barnyard. Clearly unsatisfied, Brian took a break between takes four and five, in which he completely revised the track's arrangement. These new takes kind of take on a specter goes to the country approach. String parts are slower, but with double-time beat on the drums. Swung acoustic guitar propelling the rhythm. New dueling harmonica and clarinet melodies from Tommy Morgan and Jay Migliori. The heavier arrangement stuck, and after 16 takes, the master was achieved, lasting six rounds. From Michael Vossi in 1969. Brian started playing it slowly, almost like an R&B thing, just slowing down the tempo, really mournful. We were all a little high, I guess, that night and he started doing a You Were My Sunshine thing. He put the song in the past tense, and he was trying to find his bass rhythm for it. And in doing that, he found this weird little riff that just sort of developed. And it hit him right then that he wanted a barnyard. He wanted Old MacDonald's farm. He wanted all that stuff. So he immediately got Van Dyke over, and they did a chart for You Were My Sunshine, which it's so hard to remember exactly what wound up doing because he changed things so much. He wound up writing a clarinet part for it, which is impossible to describe, a whole different sound than he found in the middle of all this, and it developed into an instrumental thing with barnyard sounds. He had people in the studio sawing on wood and Van Dyke being a duck, and it was marvelous. It made you smile and at the same time touched you. That's a great way to sum up this track. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a sentimental vibe to it, and uh, it also paints a really nice picture. That to me is one of the, the most interesting smile quotes, just because... I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't, yeah, it, just the way Michael Bossy there is, makes a connection between, you know, My Only Sunshine, and he connects it to Barnyard, and then he connects that to um, the workshop stuff. Somehow, like, some somehow the, the, he was making these connections in his head just from remembering what he did with Brian, and it's really hard to say exactly how these, these things were associated, but, you know, it's just kind of interesting to consider that in the 2004 version, they ended up segueing from, from Barnyard into into my only sunshine and then um on the the tracking session for the for the workshop stuff it was labeled i'm in great shape so there's some sort of some sort of vague connection there and i don't know what's going on but it's it's interesting to point that out it's a great arrangement and um it reminds me of like an old movie or something like the credits of an old movie yeah i always picture someone like riding off into the sunset yep. on a horse exactly and i think that's that's the visual i get that's too. that's that's what they were probably intending it sounds exactly like that yeah, and, uh, and uh, right before the take, Brian goes, all right, guys, this is the big finale. Yeah, awesome. Which is interesting. So two weeks later, the boys' first session upon returning from tour included work on the Sunshine Medley at Western. Part one received a single lead vocal overdub from Dennis, a wash and ghostly reverb. Sunshine, burning 
You are my sunshine becomes my only sunshine. Brian takes the lyrics and puts them in the past tense, like, like something is over. He dulls the melody. He, he restricts its range to a minor third. It, it's sort of, it's just, it's down, it's glum. And the strings, he almost does the same thing with. He, he limits their range. Uh, they can't get out of their funk. They want to go to new chords, but something's keeping them there. Uh, and then the lyric goes, how could you? How could you? Then the alto emerges sort of laughing at the whole thing as the strings melt away. So the, the old master painter section right here is instrumental, and I don't think they were ever planning on doing vocals on top of that because um, they finished all the vocals for this song in one day at this one session. And it didn't seem like Brian ever had anything planned to go on top of that i think it's just a little instrumental passage well it's it's the melody start it's, the track yeah it's not the, it's not a backing it's it's the melody itself right being played by the cellos it's kind of like spoiler alert for the future but that old folks at home intro yeah to old man river in 1968 just a little instrumental intro quoting a separate song and then yeah you just have single track dennis on that first part and on part two there's a whole group arrangement where it's the five of them. Uh, no Bruce, sadly, for some reason. And it's Brian, Carl, and Dennis doing it like a three-part harmony. After that, Mike and Al join in. And it's this really, really cool five-part harmony there that's kind of buried because we just have the mono mix. Then there's also a, a lead vocal from Mike um, singing the same melody as the first part, but over these happier, bouncier chords. And it's really quiet in the mix, but if you focus on, on that melody, you can hear him. He's just singing like different sections, different little fragments of those lyrics. When Van Dyke was doing the whole 2005 book, and that was brought up, he said that he didn't remember anything about that, and it was a surprise to him, the You Are My Sunshine, because... Van Dyke, I think the last thing he worked on was Barnyard as a, as a writer. And then he sort of unofficially left the project. That was the end of his collaboration. And then he came back to help Brian out in February and the start of March. But aside from being a visitor, he'd done his work. And Sunshine was something Brian put together completely um, by himself. And um, the, yeah, it's, it's just interesting the way he put together these two songs. And I can't take credit for coming up with this interpretation but he turns it into a song but i can't take credit for for running with it and going further but um you know he turns it into a song about god with this thing um you know he put he takes you are my sunshine and puts the lyrics in the past tense and turns it into this mournful ballad about a lost love and then recontextualizes that by putting the old master painter at the start of it which is about god and um it makes it into a song about kind of disillusionment and losing faith and all that because you know any other time in brian's career i would have said that's just a, an accident you know he thought it sounded good and he put them together but here in late 66 he was thinking about these things all the time and he consuming every book he threw at him the whole the whole album all the songs connect back to belief and the nature of belief and that's 
what we were mainly writing about at the time. You know, going back to Pet Sounds, if I'm, you know, going on a tangent here, but um, the, the songs Tony Asher and Brian wrote together weren't a concept narrative, but they did have an emotional thread through all of them. And then when Brian sequenced the album, he made like a conscious decision to put Wouldn't It Be Nice at the start and end it with Here Today and Just Wasn't Ready For These Times and Caroline Knows. So it turns into an album about loss of innocence. And that smile was kind of getting that innocence back. If there's one way you could sum up the whole album, you know, it's all about the humor sort of thing and look into the past and, um, you know, reconciling with what America's kind of been built on and where it's going. And really the whole album is Brian and Van Dyke looking at what the, what the, the music of the Beach Boys means, not in a vacuum, but in like the whole, within the, the big cultural shift that was happening at the time in the 60s and then zooming even further out to compare that to the birth of America and all this stuff and the first like Plymouth Rock and the first railroads going across the country and this journey to modern California. And that's kind of part of this, part of the smile of humor as well you know i don't think it was lost on them that how kind of funny it is to be talking about rock and roll through the lens of like the pilgrims landing at plymouth rock and going rock rock roll plymouth rock roll over you know so that that's what smile kind of is and then surfs up is, is the answer at the end of that where he finds you know the answer that the, the conclusion that they come to is that it's all about how man-made society has to collapse and the answer is childhood and the beach and writing songs in a sandbox and reconnect with nature and all that so you're my sunshine kind of you know my only sunshine is kind of a midpoint of that it's this sort of it feels like he's writing a song about losing faith and then the end of the album he finds it again that's my take on it anyway i've gone on a lot but you know <laughs> i'm interested it's, it's, it's a fun thing to talk about <laughs> it definitely is but uh we have talked too much this week so we must continue next time with more heroes and villains and uh more smile so thanks will thanks john Really appreciate you guys. No problem. You're welcome. I, I try to figure out what smile is all about. I just think it has a lot to do with believing, believing in people, believing in something, and. Um, um, and restoring faith, very simple. This has been the Salem Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Big shout out to Will and John, who have been working tirelessly on this stuff for a very long time. And a lot of these uh, session breakdowns that we're using are going to be part of a bigger project that they are working on. And uh, you will hear about it first here on the podcast, I promise. Also, a big shout out to Steve Bonilla, who is always blowing my mind with his awesome insight. If you guys don't know, head over to our Instagram. You can check out a awesome Summer Madness tournament. We are pitting 88 Beach Boys songs against each other. And we're down to about the final 32 right now. So check that out. It's a lot of fun. And uh, there's a link in the show notes. Also, you can hit us up on email. That is saleonpodcast at gmail.com. Send us a voicemail at 615-606-3887. Thanks to Will C., who does all the awesome music for the show. And uh, I will talk to you guys very soon. I love you. Sail on, sailors.
All right, it's time to bring in Will and John, who are our resident Beach Boys nerds. How are you guys doing? <laughs> I love that on the <laughs> I love that on the page. I just put audible groans next to that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, I mean, right. you know, I'm not wrong. You are not wrong. <laughs> it's, what, it's what I think every time <laughs> I have to listen to myself back. <laughs> Mahalalulay, 